0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today online. Now, as I began the study for this morning, this Bible passage that we'll look at today, a theme kind of popped out, jumped out at me, and here's what it was. Character traits. You know, unless somebody's a crazy person, we all want to live out good character traits, don't we? You know, qualities about us that are good and wholesome and beneficial and appealing to our friends and family and others. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you want those qualities to honor God. You want to live out those qualities in Scripture. Now, character traits are popular even beyond Christianity. I did a quick Google search and found list after list after list of character qualities. Now, there's one particular list that beat them all, and here's what it is. It was a list of 500 character qualities. You know, some of these like uh, afraid or like uh, astonished or uh, uh, charming. Uh, whoever put this list together did a whole, whole lot of work because this list is both, reflects both good and bad character traits. Now, the passage today in Philippians or in the book of Philippians we're going to unpack this whole thing of character qualities, character traits. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, he doesn't deal with any deep theological point in this particular passage, but with some character qualities. And as he gives us illustrations of character and action, he does it with a whole lot of tenderness and affection for the people in the church in the city of Philippi. Now, he had founded this church 10 years prior. Here's a map, kind of give you a little bit of context here. When he wrote this book... He was in prison in Rome, and here's Rome right here, Italy, okay? And the journey from Rome to Philippi, there's where Philippi is, here's Greece. If you walked straight 24-7, and you even walked across the ocean here, you'd walk 216 hours. Now, in that day and time, including the boat trip, it took about three months round trip. Now, he loved these people, but he was a long ways away and in jail for his fate. Now, in this passage, he illustrates five crucial character traits that we're going to look at that he saw and he, that he modeled really in himself and that he also pointed out in two fellow church leaders. These guys' names, one was Timothy, the other guy's name was Epaphroditus. So today, we're going to delve into these five character traits and I'm going to ask you to do something for me, to consider how you think these uh, traits would be described from those who know you best. That is, those who know you best, how would they describe how well those traits show up in your life? How consistent are you? I'm not asking you to consider how consistent you think you are, but to consider someone who knows you well, and if they were to evaluate you, what would they say? What I'm going to do, I'm going to put them in, in, uh, uh, by way of opposites, after we cover the five. I'm going to give you the opposite trait, and then the trade, and then just kind of determine, you know, where on this scale would you place yourself? And then, i going to ask you to pick one, to really, let that be your focus this next week. Okay? All right, so here's the big idea. The big idea is the Apostle Paul illustrates five character traits that Jesus wants to build into your life and my life. Now, if you want to get your Bibles and follow along, I'm going to be in Philippians 2, 19 through 30, it's your Bibles, your Bible app. So, I'm going to read this passage. I have to switch out glasses, one for close and one for far away. So, Philippians 2, 19 through 30. Okay, here we go. I, this is Paul speaking. He wrote the book, obviously, I said it a moment ago. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Because he was in prison, as I said a moment ago. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But... I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. He was also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. I'll explain that in a moment, what he's saying there. For he that is Epaphroditus longs for all of you, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but... God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. So that's a really great passage and really a lot of, a lot of good, uh, good insight in that. So, Timothy, because he referred to Timothy, he says in verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send him, to send Timothy to you soon. Timothy was a very prominent disciple and a trainee of Paul who was with him there at Rome while he was in prison. His hope was not, as he wrote here, was not wishful thinking like, I hope it happens but a confident hope that he would send Timothy to the church in Philippi for this reason, that I, that is Paul, also may be cheered when I receive news about you. So it gives a purpose for sending him that he he and those people in the church of Philippi would be cheered after receiving news about them upon Timothy's return. Now usually when Paul mentions a messenger, um, like Paul's plan for Timothy, A messenger was sent to deal with some problem in the church. Here, though, Paul is sending Timothy uh, for this reason, for Paul's benefit, that Paul himself might be cheered and encouraged when he hears back from Timothy that this church was doing well, even under the hard hand of Roman persecution. Now, cheer, this idea of cheer, really comes from the word courage. And when we cheer somebody up, we give them courage, we end Courage, them, we place courage in them, we cheer them up. Now although that church knew Timothy, Paul is commending Timothy much like when we ask someone to write a letter of recommendation for us when we get a new job, he's commending him in that way. But he says in verse 20, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, apparently the church at Rome was not doing so well. It was apparently a lot of people there were self-centered, self-focused. He could not find others who had a heart like Timothy's. Even some of those who preached the gospel were full of self-ambition and were mean-spirited. Paul refers to them in Philippians 1.15. He says it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and robbery to read to create problems for Paul. See, Timothy was the only one left with Paul in Rome who was free enough from his own self-interest to devote himself to the welfare of others. Now, he continues in verse 22. But you know that Timothy, Timothy has proved himself, he describes it like a son with his father, working with him in the gospel, the whole the ministry. The Timothy has shown by his actions and his attitude his value and worth to Paul. He has evidence-proven character. Circumstances have tested him, and he's shown to be the real deal. Now, in the ancient world, before the Industrial Revolution came about, most sons end up doing vocationally what their fathers did. So if your father was a farmer, uh, then you would probably become a farmer. If your father was, like, say, a, a baker, most likely you'd become a baker. And your primary apprenticeship was to your father and to that role he played. It was your dad who taught you the tricks of the trade, who gradually taught you all that he knew and step by step increased your knowledge and responsibility over whatever area that was. Timothy, in a like similar fashion, was deeply devoted to Paul in that uh, the way to learn how to spiritually lead, a princip- basic principle is this, and to do life well was to follow someone who's doing well. And Timothy followed Paul's example as Paul followed Jesus' example. Timothy did what Paul did and served him with humility as kind of like his spiritual father, which he was. Then verse 23, he says, I hope therefore to see him that is Timothy, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident that I'm gonna come soon as well. Now Timothy, we I mean, you see the sequence here in a little bit, Timothy is actually staying put in Rome for a while until there's further resolution of Paul's prison uh, issue, and hopefully that gets worked out. And then he said, I'm sending Timothy on. Paul felt that after a period of time, he too would be able to return to see them as well, see them you know, face, face to face. Now next we learn about this second person who is in Rome helping Paul, while Paul was in prison. Verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus that he describes in several ways a brother, fellow worker, soldier, and messenger who he says you sent to take care of my needs. Now, historical context helps us understand this. In those days, a Roman prison, you know, looking something like this, did not have a cafeteria. It did not have a clothes closet for those in prison. The government just put you in a jail cell without providing food or clothes uh, or medical care. If you had a friend, and say if you lived in those days, you had a friend or family member in prison, it was up to you and that guy in prison, uh, his friends and family, to visit that prisoner to provide those necessities. So this little church, 1,200 kilometers away as the crow flies, unlike other churches, took up a generous offering for Paul's needs, and had sent Epaphroditus and most likely a couple of other uh, traveling companions to bring this gift to Paul so he could be cared for. So, Paul gives a pretty good description of the character of this man, Epaphroditus. He called him a brother. Now, to be called a brother, that was a, kind of a sense of uh, we're from the same spiritual bloodline. It was a word that conveyed brotherly affection. He called him a fellow worker. In other words, this was a use, actually used for a person who, in those days, in Roman days, who loved their city so much and they had the wherewithal that they would, at their own expense, do something great for the city, like, say, covering the cost of, of one of the, the Greek games they were known for, or paying for the athletes to be able to train in the public games, or to, uh, like, outfit a, a warship. These people were recognized benefactors of their city. So he called them that. He also called them a fellow soldier meaning he was a battle-tested warrior who had been wounded in combat. We'll see this in a minute. And he was sending him home for a rest. Epaphroditus was no weekend warrior. He actually called him next a messenger. And here's what's going on here. This is the word for apostle. Now, this is not in the same case of apostle. Uh, the, The official apostles, capital A, had seen Jesus after he had risen from the dead. But this was actually used as a term of dignity. So this guy, Epaphroditus, was a normal guy in the church who faithfully served and would have never been known if it were not for Paul's brief mention of him here. If Epaphroditus faithfully discharged his God-given responsibility and his name ended up in the Bible. Now, Paul was the very much upfront public person. Well, people like Epaphroditus were behind-the-scenes type kind of people. Paul was making sure that they understood that he, Epaphroditus, was just as important in the ministry as was Paul himself. Now see, just because you don't have a public ministry position like, say, I do, your ministry is no less important. God wants us to be faithful no matter how small or how large or public or private our task is that God gives us. Now, we next learn of an unexpected challenge that happened. We read about it a moment ago. Verse 26 says, For he, this is a paproditus, longs for all of you, and he's distressed because you heard that he was ill. Paul says, Indeed, he was ill, and so sick he almost died. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So, here's what's happening. On the trip from Philippi to Rome to deliver this money, Epaphroditus got sick, deathly ill. And one of the travelers with him went back to Philippi to give them the news of his sickness. That's probably how they uh, knew about it. Another fellow traveler probably stayed with Epaphroditus during his sickness. Now, he was so sick that he almost died. Now, in those days, if you got that sick, you probably would die because medical care was limited uh, or non-existent. So apparently, God worked a miracle here by reviving him from his sickness. Now, the health crisis was directly tied to his work for Christ, Epaphroditus' work for Christ. This trip uh, to bring these funds almost killed him. This mission to see Paul puts Epaphroditus' life in jeopardy, but he was determined to follow through with the responsibility. Paul needed help, and he was going to help no matter how it affected his health. So, because of this, Paul sent Epaphroditus back home more quickly than he normally would have, given different circumstances, because he had heard how concerned the church in Philippi was for Epaphroditus. And he wanted to allay both their concern and allay Epaphroditus' concern about their concern, because Epaphroditus was concerned about their concern. It would be kind of like saying, hey guys, listen, I, I'm sick. I'm, I, I was sick, but I'm okay. I was really sick, but now I'm doing a whole lot better. It's, it's kind of like when I, I shared uh, with you a few weeks ago, I went in for an angiogram because of a little heart blip a few weeks ago, and the doctor thought I had a heart blockage. And it wasn't. But many of you were praying and concerned about it. Yet when I got the news that there were no blockages, I let you know so that you wouldn't have to be concerned anymore. That was kind of the paproditus and Paul's desire so the church of Philippi would not be concerned about Paphroditus. So, Epaphroditus and Paul experienced God's mercy because that paproditus' death would have been a tremendous blow to Paul. Now notice how he uses these two words sorrow. He uses them twice. Kind of like this. He calls it sorrow upon sorrow. To imply that he already had one level of current sorrow, you know, he was in prison, and God saved him from having an additional weight of sorrow, a level two. If Paproditus had died, Paul was in prison, which was level one sorrow. And if Paproditus had died, that would have been an extremely terrible sorrow. Yet, the entire book of Philippians, Paul writes about joy. Sixteen times he mentions joy. You see, Christian joy does does, uh, not mean an absence of sorrow, but the capacity to experience joy and rejoice while recognizing the difficulty, but being able to do that in the midst of sorrow. Then he says in verse 28, Therefore I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad, the church there, and I may have less what? Anxiety. And he tells them to welcome him in the Lord with great joy, honor and like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. Now, sending him would result in them being cheered, along with Paul being cheered. He, he could assure them that he, Paul, that is Epaphroditus, that Paul also was Okay. Now, remember that Paul had just described Epaphroditus in these very complimentary ways. He called him a brother, and he called him a uh, a fellow worker, and he called him a soldier. Uh, He was saying, hey, give that guy, Epaphroditus, that kind of person, a gracious welcome home. He almost died serving Christ, so I want you to show your appreciation for a sacrifice and celebrate it. Now, a little phrase here. Uh, is make up for right here. It's important. This phrase make up for really refers to something being deficient. And he's saying that when the body of Christ, he's implying for us, the application for us is when he's, impl- he's implying that when the body of Christ has a need, God's people have the responsibility to step up to meet that need. We have an obligation to meet that need as followers of Jesus. And Sometimes in the local church, a financial need comes up it's our job to step up to meet that need. Now, let's go back to the big idea. big idea is that the Apostle Paul illustrates these five character traits that Jesus wants to build into our lives. So let's look at those. Let's unpack these. Now, what I'm going to give you, first I'm going to give you these five character qualities. And then you'll do a brief self-evaluation that I'll give you after I give you the five. Now, the first character quality here is a heart filler. Remember how uh, Paul talked about himself being cheered by good news he hoped to receive from the church at Philippi? He said that Epaphroditus would make them glad, and that would fill the, the heart also of Paul. So when you were around others, would they say that by your words, your actions, and how you relate to them, would they say that, you know... That person is a heart-filler. They plant in my heart joy and hope and gladness and happiness. Will they say that about you. Did you know there are three kinds of people? Yeah, three kinds of people. First kind is a VIP. This this is the heart-filler. This is the person you're around, and they just fill your heart with joy and encouragement. You just just want to be around them. They, They make deposits in you. There's a second category of people called VNP. They're very nice people. They don't deposit into you, and they don't take away. They're just nice people. But then there's a third category, what I call VDP, very draining people. Some people are like emotional vacuum cleaners to your soul. It's like... They just take it all out of you. They suck the air out of you. Others, though, the VIPs are like those you know those can- canisters that uh, when you blow up balloons, you get... A... They deposit in you. They fill you up with joy and hope and encouragement. So that's the first one. Now here's the next one. Heart filler. The next one is authentic. Now Paul said that Timothy's interest was genuine. It wasn't fake. It was genuine. It was authentic. The real deal. He wasn't fake. He wasn't putting on a front. He wasn't putting on a facade. He was truly interested in their well-being. You see, an authentic person is comfortable in their own skin. Now granted, we all carry baggage from our past, we understand that, and that sometimes that puts us into protective modes when we don't feel safe around others, we naturally are a bit more wary and careful that we don't want our emotional safety to be threatened. That's a natural God-given way. God helps us keep out of danger, physical or emotional. But some people are so fearful and insecure that they can never be comfortable or authentic with others they're not real with you. So authentic is that quality, that second quality. Here's the third one. Heart filler, authentic. Other, focus. Now we saw this trait all throughout the passage. Timothy was interested in their welfare. Timothy served Paul as a son. Epaphroditus took the perilous trip to care for Paul's needs. He was a fellow worker, as Paul described him. And Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus were all other focus. they cared about others. Now think about this. Paul was alone in this jail. He had two of these caring friends with him. Yet, he was willing to send both of those friends back to Philippi because he cared more about them. He wasn't self-absorbed about his own needs, but he was other-centered. So this one relates to authenticity because a self-centered person focuses on how they appear and how they look to others. Yeah. They put on veneers. They put on facades. Their self-concept is based on performance and acceptance by others, so they kind of morph their behavior into what they think the current group or person is looking for. So hard filler... Authentic, other-focused, here's the fourth one, what I call testable faith. Let me explain that. A person we describe as one having testable faith is willing to take steps of faith even when it's risky or if the outcome is uncertain. Now, I don't mean stupid risk. I do mean that this kind of faith reaches out into the unknown, into unsaved and uncertain territory because that person feels that God wants them to do, what, do a certain thing. Now, for us, coming to Canada nine years ago from the States was a big risk. New country, you know, new money, new, <laughs> new food, the whole medical system is different. But you know what? We stepped out in that uncertainty and how it has paid off as this experience serving West Park has been an incredibly satisfying experience. Now, Paul described Timothy as one who had proved himself. That means that Timothy had been tested in the crucible of life and been found faithful. Timothy had been tested. Paul described Epaphroditus as risking his life for noble purposes. He took a real risk, a real gamble, so to speak, to do what he did for his faith. In fact, the word Paul used was a gamble, actually a gambler's word, which means to stake everything on a throw of the dice. Now, obviously, this is a little different context, but that's kind of where the word comes from. Paul is saying that for the sake of Jesus Christ, Epaphroditus, in a way, gambled his life. Now, what do I mean by that? And not foolishly, like, you know, gambling your money away at the casinos, but courageously as he stepped out on this long, risky trip to meet Paul's needs. As I put this message together, I had to ask myself as I thought about this point, Now, Charles, are you really willing to risk safety, risk convenience, risk familiarity, risk your possessions for Jesus? It really made me think. He's almost showing reckless courage here that made him ready to gamble with his life to serve Christ. And unfortunately, we don't see that a whole lot in our Western world today. Now, here's the final one. So, you got hard filler, authentic, other-focused, testable, and here's the last one, the fifth one: emotionally self-aware. See, Paul is quite transparent about his own emotions and Epaphroditus' emotions as well. Paul describes himself as feeling anxious and feeling sorrow. He described Epaphroditus as distressed. You see, being a strong follower of Jesus does not mean that we don't experience unpleasant emotions. He doesn't exempt us from them. God made us to have these emotions. They are gifts to us, and we must manage and understand them for sure. But an emotionally self-aware person knows their emotion in the moment and can name and label that emotion. In fact, one of the ways neuroscientists have discovered that we can take out the sting and control of unpleasant emotions is to label them, to acknowledge them, put a label on them. When you label an unpleasant emotion, you actually lessen and dial down the intensity. It's kind of like, Lord, right now I'm feeling anxious. I'm having feelings of worry or sadness or anger. Now, it's not just recognizing negative emotions, but recognizing and appreciating the positive ones as well. Paul said that when you see a, path for a dice, you will be glad. He told them to welcome him and others like him with great joy. You see, Paul's emotions were all tied to the health of the church and the advancement of the gospel. However, unfortunately for a lot of folks today, comfort our lack of comfort, our, pleasant, our unpleasant circumstances largely drives their choices. So there you have the five. Heart-filler, authentic, other-focused, testable faith, and emotionally self-aware. Now, let's get to this self-evaluation phase. I'm going to ask you to do some self-evaluation. I'm going to put up a scale for each of these. And I want you to ask yourself, where would others place me on this scale of contrast? Okay? So here's the first one. Heart drainer versus a heart filler. What others call you a VDP, a very draining person, or a VIP, a very important person. And I'll put them all on one slide in a minute. I'm going to put them down individually. Here's the next one. Facade-like, you put on fronts, or you're you're authentic. You're, You're comfortable enough in your own skin. You can be authentic. Where would those closest to you place you? Here's the next one. Self-focused versus other-focused. Where would those who know you best place you on this scale? Here's the next one. Safe and secure faith in contrast to testable faith. By that I mean your faith is such that I'm not going to take spiritual risks. Uh, I'm not going to take courageous stands. I'm going to play it safe versus you're willing to step out in faith so that your faith can be tested. Here's the last one. Emotionally oblivious. In other words, your emotions drive you. You don't stop and think about it, name them, describe them, deal with them, versus you're emotionally self-aware. And you respond to your emotions, recognizing that they're real, but they don't have to control you. Now, let's put them all up here at once, okay? Heart drainer, heart filler. Facade-like, authentic. Self-focused, other-focused. Safe and secure faith, testable faith, emotionally oblivious, emotionally self-aware. So where would you put yourself? I want you to pick one of these. One of these that probably needs the most spiritual work this week. Okay. Now, how would others describe Paul? Well, (laughs) they put him over here. Why is that? Why would that be so? Was it because Paul just had great willpower and just gutted it out? Well, he had willpower, but that wasn't why. Was it because he was super smart and he just knew how to do these kind of things and good emotional uh, intelligence? Well, he had those, but that wasn't it. The source of his character, we find in a little phrase that we can sometimes miss it. It's mentioned three times, and here it is, in the Lord. The Apostle Paul was all in to his commitment to Jesus. In fact, he mentions Jesus 37 times in this letter, and he mentions over 125 times in his writings of being in Christ or in the Lord. In fact, he describes himself as a servant. Now, that's actually the word for a slave. Now, using the word in that day and time to describe yourself was not looked upon favorably by those in, in the culture then. Yet, he called himself a slave of Christ because he was Jesus' absolute possession. He owed absolute obedience to him. The foundation of this letter and his life was that Christ was his all. He lived and loved out of a life of being in the Lord. Now think about it like this, other, other, other faiths. A Buddhist does not speak of himself as being in Buddha. A Muslim does not speak of himself as being in Mohammed. A Christian scientist does not speak of themselves as being in, in Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of that faith. Or a Mormon in Joseph Smith or, or Brigham Young. Now, they may faithfully follow the teaching and example of those religious leaders, but they are not in them. Only Christians can claim to be in the Lord because they have been made spiritually one with Him. When I was putting this talk together, I ran across this theologian's uh, really great quote about being in Christ. And here's what he said. The guy's name is Marvin Vincent. He says, The Christian lives in Christ as a bird in the air, a fish in the sea, the roots of a tree in the soil. And then he says, what makes the Christian different is that he is always and everywhere conscious of the encircling presence of Jesus Christ. That's the key to godly character. A moment by moment, day by day, living out this incredible relationship of being in the Lord, in Christ. So to embody these qualities certainly takes our own effort. Now, we can fake them for a while, but you know what happened? They're, unless they're rooted in the Lord, they're not going to last. They're going to they're fade because they're based on self-effort, which ultimately gives out. That's why it's so important to develop a rich, day-to-day relationship with Jesus. Timothy and Epaphroditus were not merely good examples. They were that. More importantly, they were following the example of Christ. They could not have mustered up the courage nor the character over the long haul with their own discipline and their own guts. So one more time back to this list. I want you to look at this one more time. And here's the assignment I have for you. Pick one of these that resonates the most with you. Give attention to it this week. Pray about it. Maybe do uh, some Bible study on it. Talk to somebody else about it. Because Jesus wants these qualities to be produced in us by Him as we cooperate with His Spirit. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus not only as our example, but as the power and the desire to do Your will, to embody these kind of character qualities. And we know, Lord, that You expect responses on our part, but ultimately You're the one that brings this about because it is grace that develops these. Lord, I pray for the folks tuning in now that there would be a real commitment to taking one of these submitting it to you, praying about it, and allowing your spirit to do the work he needs to do. And I pray this in your name. Amen.